You've stopped in at the guidepost. Brought to you by the American Saltwater Guides Association. Stock up on gear, grab a coffee at the counter, and get ready to hear incredible fish stories from the best captains on the East Coast and thought-provoking conversations with stakeholders and policymakers working to protect these fisheries. This podcast is presented by Costa Sunglasses. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Guidepost. Uh, we do not have Tony today. We're actually going to give you guys a break from his voice. That seems to be the number one viewer request lately. So we're having too much Tony. So all joking aside, this is Captain Cody Rubner, and I'm checking in from Stewart, Florida, and I am joined by um, a man well-known on the Treasure Coast of Florida and all around the country, Mr. Captain Mike Holiday. How you doing, Mike? Good, man. A little tired, working too much, but... Yeah, it's part of life. Yeah, and fishing's easy, right? So it's uh, just a, another day on the water. You don't have to work hard at all. You just go out, catch a couple fish, come in, right? You know, like I do, it's a struggle every day, man. Yeah. It used to be really easy. Now it's a struggle. It used well, to be when you if you were bait fishing, when you caught your bait, when you closed your net and caught your bait, you knew you were having a good day. Well, that's a perfect, uh, perfect lead into what we're going to talk about here. And so last night was a meeting uh, in downtown Stewart. And it was a Stewart public workshop for snook management. And uh, it was run by FWC, uh, our uh, Florida Fish and Wildlife Commission. And I think we'll tee up maybe a, a little bit about why the meeting's going on. And we'll dive into history a little bit for people who aren't from Florida. Um, but the meeting that is going around right now is a workshop that is aiming to get public comment on FWC's new management approach for snook and so fwc is managing redfish like this before snook were looked at as a gulf fishery and an atlantic fishery and what is being proposed right now is 10 regions of management for snook and so what we're going to talk about today specifically we're both in stewart we run our businesses here you've been doing it i think about 10 times uh as long as me give or take right almost 40 years right 36 years okay and i'm probably at about 3.6 years so we'll, we'll call it 10 times the experience and 10 times the charm but um we're going to be talking specifically about the region that they are setting up for martin county and so there was a meeting last night and before we get into the meeting and, and our thoughts here and, and what the action plan is going to be going forward mike walk us through a little bit what has happened and this is a loaded question i'm sure you could talk for an hour here what is going on with snook in stewart florida more specifically let's say martin county so call it you know between here and vero between here and jupiter what is going on with snook so you know snook fishing in my area is just a mess right now um it's a combination of of you know the habitat loss and increased fishing pressure um among other issues as well, you know, shark predation and increasing use of live bait, um, the fish in the fish in the endless when they're spawning. I mean, there's a, there's a bunch of issues there, but the, the biggest issue by far is the loss of habitat. Um, about 2010, the Indian River Lagoon that at that point in time was the, the most diverse estuary in North America, mm -hmm. uh, lost in Southern and where I live, lost, I would tell you hundred percent of its seagrass. Um, there's some grass areas, there's some sparse grass but there's no thick meadows and to give people a little context here about how 
you know, the, I think it's like 40 something percent, you know, someone can fact check me here. It's between 40 and 50% of the East coast, the Indian river runs. It's a very significant stretch of the treasure coast where we are talking about is the Southern end where the St. Lucie river is coming over from the center of the state from Lake Okeechobee. Um, if listeners know anything about captains or clean water, which we're both avid supporters of, you know, the discharges are coming in from the St. Lucie into our estuary and they're meeting the Indian river those two rivers converge into our inlet and go out the Atlantic Ocean. So just painting a picture for people who don't know about the layout, we're specifically talking about the southern end of the Indian River. Northern end has its own issues. We're not even going to open that can of worms right now. The river itself is 169, 196 miles long, and it terminates in Stewart. Mm -hmm. And um, right there, the St. Lucie River runs to Lake Okeechobee. Discharges come from Lake Okeechobee. We may have... Uh, you know, 200 days of water discharges where we get, you know, a billion gallons of water a day at sometimes. Mm-hmm. Um, so it eventually takes areas of the river. Um, some of it goes out the inlet, some of it washes on the incoming tide, it's forced up in the Indian River. And um, when that happens day after day after day, the whole river becomes fresh and saltwater seagrass doesn't live in fresh water. You've also got turbid water coming down from the lake, right? So you're going to get a lot of uh, different materials that aren't the Indian River's native uh, sediment as well. So you're going to cover over. You're going to cover over your seagrass. You're going to change the bottom composition and what they have, what the grass has to root into. Um, and so, yeah, you know, if if anyone wants to go deeper into the discharge issue, you're going to hear us talk about it. I'm sure a bunch of different times today. Uh, Captain Sir Clean Water, learn a little bit more about the water fight. CaptainsCleanWater.org. There's your website. Captains are Clean Water on social media. Um, learn a little bit more about that dynamic. We could go 10 hours deep just on that dynamic alone. But you're going to hear us talk about the discharges a lot and the discharges killed the grass. Mike, what did this fishery, because I've been running my business coming on four years here now, I've fished the flats that we're going to reference a couple of different times here, okay? I What I know those flats are as far as value goes pompano in the winter who don't mind whizzing over white sand right that's fine we actually have a little sneaky uh another popular species maybe i'll blur it out right here but bonefish right so we've got an extra little winter winter um fishery growing but i know it as white sand and i say beautiful white sand in quotes because for the average boater they go out there and they see oh look at it i mean it's teal green water maybe on a good tide beautiful water oh god it can look incredible and it's all white you got some boats jacked up you hear some music we got a couple drinks going this is florida living right what did that fishery look like back when i was born i mean even as recent as like about 2000, between 2010, 2012, that's when all the grass disappeared. Mm-hmm. I mean, we had, prior to that, uh, the Indian River itself had lost about 40% of its seagrass population. Um, and then after that, it lost, I would tell you, 100% of its seagrass population. And as you um, think about the river, it's not a super wide area. It's probably a mile, mile and a half wide in some areas. Um, it is, it has an average depth of, of, of about three feet. So it's basically the whole river is seagrass meadow. In fact, they, they dug the intercoastal waterway. They had to dig a channel for navigation. And when they dug that, they put all the sand on one side or the other side of the channel, and that's created some spoil islands and some sandbars. But other than that, it was all grass flats, the whole river. Mm-hmm. Out in the middle, you're just out in the middle of grass. And it, and it was beautiful, beautiful grass. Um, very healthy. 
uh, very dynamic. Shrimp, crabs, uh, you could catch, horses. You know, when you're fishing, there's pinfish flashing all around. Uh, in fact, some days <clears throat> you didn't want to fish soft baits because a pinfish would bite little chunks off of them and just eat up, you know, your, your $4 soft bait. Mm-hmm. Um, very, very strong population of, of game fish. I mean, back then, my majority, I would tell you 30 to 40% of my clients came in from Texas just to catch giant sea trout. Um, we had some of the biggest trout in the world here. I think for perspective, I think I catch about three a year. I, I, I haven't caught three in any of the last 10 years. I think I caught two. Uh, I mean, I, three, I, no, I got three. Here's, here's all, all rats, 10, in, 10 inches. But it's big, deep seagrass meadows. When you walk, uh, the grass would come almost to the surface, and then it would have big potholes in it, big sand holes, and then the deeper areas would make these big craters where the fish on low tide would get pushed. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and to give you a good analogy, in the, in the months of April and May, I would snook fish, and um, I would catch, you know, between two and five sea trout every day while snook fishing. And, and in the area I was, I'm close to the inlet, um, our winter population would get a lot of bluefish. Bluefish come in and if a sea trout's small, they bite the tail off. Like a three pound bluefish will bite the tail off a four pound sea hmm. trout. And then the other blues will come and they're just eating piece by piece because you can't swim away. Hmm. So in this area, you only had big sea trout uh, in this area that I fished. And I would catch, I would catch between two and five every day in April and May while I'm snook fishing, they were just incidental catches. I'm I'm throwing, uh, you know, a seven or eight inch threadfin bait um, and they're eating them. And, and you know, so the average fish was probably eight pounds. Hmm. When, and every day we caught one that was close to 10. I mean, it was just common. That was just your incidental catches. And I had, I had a targeted fishery. I had guys that came just to catch those fish. Um, and then, I mean, you could go anywhere on the flats uh, and you had these real diverse, um, fish population. There were schools of redfish, not massive schools, but we had schools of redfish. We had black drum. We had massive schools of ladyfish and small jacks and bluefish in the winter. Um, so many ladyfish and jacks, they would mix with the pompadum. And you would, when you went pompadum fishing, you know, you would be out there just jigging and you would catch a hundred fish in a day, you know, and it would sort of like ladyfish, ladyfish, jack, jack, ladyfish, jack, jack, pompadum, ladyfish, ladyfish, jack, jack, pompadum. And by the end of the day, you had six or eight pompanos, so you had something to eat and caught a ton of fish. And it was a nice, fun, light tackle day for people who just wanted to bend the rod. Um, <clears throat> those are all gone. I mean, they're, they're just not here anymore at all. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then you also had these populations of younger sea trout that people would fish. Um, so the dynamic of the river itself was a little bit different. Everybody was spread out. People were out fishing in the middle of the river. Doing different ta- things. Out on the flats, throwing yep. topwater plugs for trout and snook and reds. And mm-hmm. and you'd have other guys targeting pompano. You'd have other guys that, that are working the markers for triple tail. And you had the guys fishing uh, the potholes for snook. Mm-hmm. Um, so everybody was very spread out. Um, you don't see that today because nope. all that grass is gone. And, I mean, you call it a, say, a white sandbar. I call it a moonscape. Yeah. It's... I mean, it's just like you took a giant grass meadow and made it sand. Yeah. It, you know what it's reminiscent of? It's like the dust bowls Yeah. Um, in America where they used to be, you know, beautiful, lush farmland and now they're sand. Yeah. No. And, and when you see such a major loss in diversity, this leads 
perfectly into because we could have a million conversations about all those individual species and, and what's going on there. But this leads into what just went down last night with the snook management in this area. When you lose all that diversity, everyone does what? Fish for what's left. That's correct. And so everyone now, if you're an inshore boat around here, what percentage of the inshore boats that not not like a, a sandbar boat going out to just maybe put a line out behind the boat, see something pulls while they drink, a boat that's launching to go fish, what percentage out of the, the three ramps around us are going to target snook? Now I, mean, I would I would say at least ninety percent. Ninety percent. Yeah, yeah. I, you know, you you can't go target trout. Mm-hmm. You just can't. Can't target redfish. You can't target redfish. You can't target. You can target pompano on occasion. Mm-hmm. Um, very low percentage rate on it. You're going to catch one, maybe two. Yep. Um, so it's not like a. It's specialized. Most of the guys that are doing that are the same guys that are fishing bonefish that are very focused on what they're doing. And we got um, we got tarpon. We have a, a great you know great seasonal opportunities for tarpon, but it's seasonal also specifically you know kind of that that game fish that people are targeting. It's a niche crowd that wants yeah. to fish for tarpon. The smaller ones fun for most people. Bigger ones fun for you know a, a niche. So you've got these little pockets, but everyone is snook fishing. Pretty much. I mean that's the one that's the one fish you can probably go and catch. Yep. And you know there's been um, improvements in catching them that that have made it easier to catch them which you know for us that means a live bait boat so these guys that catch and sell live bait mm-hmm. um and so so to explain that to people okay so now nowadays i mean shit it's almost embarrassing to mention but like nowadays some days me and you put in the day before our trip to go try to see if we can track down some bait right to catch there and a lot of days we're not successful yeah it is there is nothing worse than knowing you have to run a four-hour trip on a tuesday which obviously at least six hours goes into that. If not more, you always maybe stay out a tiny bit later than you want. You got to wash the boat. You got to trailer two back from the ramp pack before. And then you've also put in four hours before the day before. And even if you are successful, you had to add that you doubled your trip to catch your bait. And what we're talking about on the, the sale of live bait, everyone catches their bait with cast nets around here, mm-hmm. pilchards, red fins, bunker, mullet. Nowadays you can drive to the bait shop right near the ramp to purchase Depending, they got pinfish, they got mullet, croakers. croakers, or you can purchase threads, pilchards. Offshore boats are buying goggle eyes anywhere from twenty to thirty to fifty dollars a dozen on the inshore um, species, right and now like thirty dollars a dozen for pilchards. Yeah, thirty dollars. So, I mean, my well holds same as yours, a couple hundred pil. So, a couple hundred dollars to fill your live well, and I think the offshore boats are spending a hundred and something dollars a, a piece on like goggle eyes and stuff for for sailfish, which is you know a you know, kind of ancillary to this doesn't really connect. So, the the barrier to entry to catch a snook around here it's getting easier, considerably easier. It, in the it's last, considerably more effective. You know, they're, they're using the top baits. Yep, they can just go buy the top baits. It were you had to catch it and. and you, know, you not only had to know how to throw a cast net, but you also had to know where that bait was. How to see them. You got to be on the water a lot to keep track of the bait. How to how even to in, even when the when the grass was good, you had to you had to kind of know where that bait was. I, I would tell you, less than ten percent of the people on the water were fishing bait. Now we're fishing, we're fishing pilchers and thread fins and croakers that were self-caught, which are the primo baits. They were fishing uh, pinfish, 
and shrimp that they could buy at tackle shops and mullet, yep. which are also been baits, but nowhere near as effective for snook fishing as, as these white baits are. Yep. And so then also, and, and I'm, we're, you know, for listeners, we're teeing up this, this larger conversation, giving context on the shaping of this fishery. So more people accessing it, major boom in COVID, major boom even before COVID. We don't even have to dive into that. Considerably more effective at their fishing. Yep. They've got way better habitat and food for the fish. Way better technology. Way better technology. You know, I, I you feel like a wizard when you when you have someone on the bow and you say, okay, throw it to the right here. You know, I got two two snook going up uh, going up this edge right here. And they go, what are you talking about? And I look at my screen. That's two snook and they're probably a slot size fish. I can't tell you they're 26 or 27 or 28, but I can tell you they're between 26 and 32. These are, these are good fish, right? So we can see them underwater. We know where they spawn. We know exactly where they spawn and when they spawn down to the exact moon cycle, down, down to within the day. And if you're, you know, if you're pretty knowledgeable on the, the back end of the fishery science side, you even know like where on that tide they're going to be actually spawning, reduced, like producing their milk, their eggs and uh, sending it out into the current, goes out, germinates out in the ocean, tide flips back around, sends it all back into the estuary. Those eggs are going to go brew. Um, you know, fertilized way up in the mangroves. So that we already know the whole creation process and exactly where they are and they're spawning. And then the fishery has just totally declined in abundance. Okay. So what is a, give this two quick reaction numbers. If you go out tomorrow and you had a good day fishing in 2023, how many snook do you catch? Good day? Yeah. Tomorrow. Um, you, you get home. Instant reaction. You said, oh, that was a good day, Cody. We caught X. How many? 12 would probably be a good day, and most of them would be under 22 inches and maybe one good fish in the mix. Same question, but 2002. 2002. Uh, a good day, 30 to 40. Mm-hmm. Most of them, 22 to 26 inches, five or six of them. Um, up to about 35 inches and two or three of them, you know, over 40 inches. And does that number increase if you go back uh, another oh, yeah. 10 years? Oh, yeah. It's back to, okay. It, but, it used to be a lot more big fish in that mix uh-huh. is what you would see, and, and particularly certain times of year. Mm-hmm. But if you, you know, a, a good example now is if you had to, if I had somebody that said, I need a fish over 20 pounds, fairly common. People eat them for their club. Mm-hmm. You know, I need a fish over 20 pounds on 16-pound plug. Mm-hmm. Um, I could do that almost every day, no problem. And now, um, you know, I would have to, I mean, it would probably take me three days, four days to get that fish. Mm-hmm. Um, if I was bait fishing, you'd probably cut that in half if I can catch the right to bigger baits. But, you know, a lot of the bigger baits aren't there because they're netted up, mm-hmm. sold for bait. So they're already gone. Yeah. And so, you know, it's become giant hunting in the more in the more metaphorical sense, right? So <clears throat> it wasn't where are we going to find the big fish today? It's I don't know if we're going to find a big fish. And if you really want to hunt a big fish, we're going to have to go. And I'm sure there's someone listening somewhere. Oh, I know exactly where they are. We're not saying there are zero snook left as we tee up this conversation. You could fish. you could go out tomorrow, and one of us could have an outstanding day, catch you know twenty something fish, catch one or two big ones. What has changed is we can't allow these shifting baselines of that becoming 
the Hall of Fame day for a given week where you have four, two horrible ones, four okay ones, and one really good one where I, and I've never experienced it. And I, you know, truthfully, one of the things I didn't get to say in my public comment last night, but I'm pretty sick of hearing about the good old days. Kind of sucks when you, when you love it and you care about it and you want to build your own business kind of sucks to hear about. Yeah. It used to be super easy. used to be this used to be that. And we might never get back to that, but it's, it's ridiculous at the scale of which it's fallen off. Uh, and, and, you know, that's sort of one of my fears is that the new guys coming in are going to think that's acceptable. Like a 10 fish day is acceptable. That's going to be good. That's what we're targeting. Like mm-hmm. it's horrible. I catch 10 fish. I'm apologizing to my clients mm-hmm. really should be better. I, you know, I don't know. Mm-hmm. I really thought we were going to get some good fish today. I didn't. And I apologize way too much. It's I, extremely stressful. I remember, and obviously being in a newer face, right there, you have the ramp up, you have the curve and all the things you deal with being a newer guide. But I remember calling, I think I called you and I got off the water one day in the fall and I was like, dude, that was God, I just worked my ass. I was supposed to be a four. I just wanted them to get one or two more bites. I think I stayed out an extra hour, even though I didn't really have the time to do that day. Da da da. I think we got, I got like four or five fish to the boat, whatever the number is. And you said, well, better than me, we got three, right? So that's, it's, and that's really an interesting perspective. And I think it's an important dynamic that you and I could talk about this because it's not just a new face, not being able to figure it out. And it's not just the guy that's been here forever you know what are they gonna say oh well maybe they're just in a different place now and you haven't really figured it out there's only so much water here that that is sort of you know the issue that should be make it very obvious is there's a considerably smaller area that everybody is fishing Mm -hmm. that they're gonna you know have a reasonable chance of catching a fish yep catching the snook in particular and um you know you're concentrating the effort and the number of people in those areas uh, it's got to have an impact i mean just common sense tells you that there, now there there's going to be areas in in this region that are going to hold fish that are difficult to get to mm-hmm. you know like uh both fort pierce and sebastian inlet or deep inlets mm-hmm. so they're not easy to fish they're not you know the fish aren't piled up along a shoreline so it's, it's they've got somewhere to hide they do they and, have somewhere and, that's and, human free for a moment and it's takes a lot of effort to, to fish them if you're not completely on the right spot you're not getting bit at all um, but that all being said you know they've also figured out that croakers work well mm-hmm. you know sebastian Dillon's had a ton of fish for a long time mm-hmm. but now that you can buy croakers everybody's crushing them mm-hmm. they're talking about how good the bite is well you know and the dangerous part with a croaker too is they're especially effective during one of the worst times to harass your fish, which is during the spawn. The croakers eat snook eggs. They eat bull redfish eggs too. And that's why, um, you know, if, if you're fishing for bull reds with a croaker, sometimes you get a bite, you miss it, you bring it back in. The croaker looks like it threw, went through a meat grinder. I mean, it is destroyed. And it is right not, it's not I'm hungry. It's don't you dare come near me while I'm doing my thing with my lady. And they destroy it, right? They're so, just killing Yeah. So, just to kill So... Outside of that, you've got croakers being utilized as an ideal way to target your spawning fish, which I am open to. I'm not an anti-harvest captain. I'm not someone that's, you got to use a barbless hook and put them back right away. The second, I'm not, there is a reasonable way to have a lot of different styles and approaches to fishing on the water. The one thing I cannot wrap my head around and no one will ever be able to convince me otherwise, you should fish your spawning fish is the most you need them. They're making the future of your recreation or your business 
leave them alone. Right. So it, you have all these dynamics in, and I want to make sure we get to the meat of this, which is last night, there actually were a couple going on before last night, Stuart specifically our neck of the woods. We have our snook workshop. I have to move because your house cat fell asleep on our little workshop. What's up, cat? They had snook workshop. And so FWC is looking at 10 new management regions for snook. Off the jump, instant gut reaction, awesome. Because we need, our area is uh, unique. way overdue. And, and, and look, you're looking, you're breaking the state up into 10 zones. Mm-hmm. And each zone is different. You know, the West Coast will get a red tide and it kill a bunch of fish. Or they'll get a freeze, or one area will get a freeze and kill a bunch of fish. Or for some reason, they have a great recruiting year and they have more fish than ever. You can react to it mm-hmm. within a year or two and, and raise or lower the limits. Um, if there's a problem, though, you can react, which is the most important thing. You can react right away. Mm-hmm. Um, and-, and then some areas that don't get any fish impression at all, why even mess with it? Yep. And, and, you know, I, I liked how uh, I believe it was Derek uh, from FWC last night who said it, it allows us to not punish an area who's doing good while we try to solve problems in areas that are doing bad. So off the jump, boom, thumbs up. We're here. We want to hear more. The next step of this is that they want the regions to be evaluated using a new series of metrics. They've got one that's historically been their major metric, which is the spawning potential ratio, SPR. We'll get into that in a second. Go through the rest of the list. Harmful algal blooms, HABs. Stakeholder feedback. That's me, you, and every other kook who shows up to those damn meetings. Fishing effort and catch rates. Habitat, relative abundance, and temperature. So we're gonna break this down. We are presented with a chart as we start to get into FWC's data. It is the spawning potential ratio. And so how this was described to us, okay, this is a comparison of how many spawning class, spawning capable fish are in the fishery right now while we fish it compared to how many would be there if everyone stopped fishing and there was no fishing and angling pressure. So they call 20 and and I know I'm I'm sure there's a fisheries biologist maybe that wants to add a little tweak there. But off, you know, at a high level, that's what SPR is looking at. Their goal is 20, or, or sorry, excuse me, their bare minimum is 20. They do not want to be below 20. Their goal is 40. And this little chart that we're, we're seeing here, it ramps up, it goes up above that green line in the last, basically since 2002, where you said this entire fishery collapsed. Mm-hmm. This line goes up and around 2016, it levels off and we're at 52%. So this one chart, Snook's doing good in the Atlantic. Uh, and it's broad-based. I mean, keep, keep in mind, it's the whole East Coast of Florida. And that's right? the that's major saying, distinction. That's one thing. They're saying that um, this percentage of the spawning fish will survive. And, you know, there's some argument to, okay, um, there's a, there, from the Snook Symposium, we learned that there's a large percentage of big fish that move offshore. Once they move offshore to the reef, they never come back to live inshore. They will come back to spawn in the inlet. So they make up a percentage of those fish that come in the inlet to spawn, but they never come back in the river to live. Mm-hmm. So you're not you're not going to catch them on a topwater plug. 
It's not going to happen. They're and not going to be part of your big fish population. Snook so should not be. as part of your inshore population is kind of ridiculous. Um, Though they do, they do contribute when they spawn. They do contribute, they do contribute to, to, to the juvenile fish that will end up in the river, That's but good. they are not accessible as. So that is a difficult, acknowledging that is a difficult dynamic that goes into processing how you manage this fishery. But the end game, right? The, the end game, these fish were described in the intro to this as one of Florida's most iconic fish. They might have said yeah. Florida's most the iconic cultists. fish, yeah. right? They need to be managed as such as a way that they're available to everyone. So are we going to manage our fishery in our region to the point of these become like uh, deep drop jig fish? Do you want to, do you need a center console I, to go I offshore? I spawning at the uh, Snick Symposium a couple of years ago. You know, yeah. is, is that what you're telling me? Is that the inshore fish fishing is going to get horrible and now we got a bottom fish in like a grouper. Yeah. Which, no. you know, that takes all the fun out of it. There's nothing like a fish. When you hook a fish in a foot of water and it goes ripping across a flat, mm-hmm. you know, just cutting awake and, and your line's just trying to catch up with the fish. Um, the visual of that is what everybody fishes for. And even outside a you know, a guided trip or some of the cool things that we still have that, that we're able to do with our anglers. Snook should also just be available. A kid should be able to walk down to a fishing pier and catch it. It doesn't have to always be a big fish. Catch a 20-inch snook and put a smile on his face. They should be available to everyone. Well, I mean, that's how our fish should be managed, right? It should be every person should be able to go fishing with a reasonable chance of catching a fish, not the pros. The one percenters, the guys that fish all the time, that are on the water, that have dialed, been doing it their whole lives, and have, you know, a really good network they're going to catch fish. Mm-hmm. But, you know, what about the guy who just goes out with his kid, wants to go fish for a couple hours and go to the sandbar? Mm-hmm. I mean, he should have a reasonable chance of catching a few fish with his kid. Mm-hmm. The same with harvest. Like, I have no problem with harvesting the fish. It just has to be enough to harvest. And, and you, again, you should be have a reasonable chance. That's why they're there. You should be able to catch something to eat. They're good-eating fish. And, and be able to take them home. And, and until you manage them to that, you, need you shouldn't a, take any. You need, a, you need to manage for abundance. Everyone, this is ASGA's motto, is better business through conservation. Conservation and preservation are not different are different things. We're not saying this is not a holier than now. We need to protect the universe and we're God's no. green peace people. This is, hey, if you like to catch and eat snook for dinner, you're not going to be able to do that if there are zero legal fish in the water. So we need to manage for abundance. More fish in the water is better for everyone. Well, it, 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 let's go back to the spawning potential ratio. I mean, they're saying um, this many, this percentage of the spawning fish survive. You know, the question I would ask is, what is that number compared to what it was 20 years ago? Shifting baselines. I mean, exactly like you said. And and so one of the one of the things that they note in this, right, is okay, well, snook have way more site fidelity on the Gulf than they do on the Atlantic coast. What that means is Gulf Snook, Tampa Bay, born in Tampa Bay, raised in Tampa Bay, probably not leaving Tampa Bay. Very, very low likelihood it leaves Tampa that, Bay. That's a giant area. I mean, those the West Coast, you look at you look at um, Charlotte Harbor and Tampa Bay. Uh, all that's giant areas compared to where we are. Now on the Atlantic coast over here, snook could grow up in our inlet. They'll leave to go out on Oceanside. They could go to a different inlet. 
So, so they're saying, okay, we look at this as one stock on the East Coast. Fair enough. Okay, if you're saying there's some sort of mixing. But FWC is going towards regional management to give areas a chance to get their fish back on track. That's awesome. You're at the one yard line. You know, you, you're the Seattle Seahawks against the Patriots. No, it- Use Marshawn Lynch and run the ball over the playing field. Okay, let's get in the end zone and actually do something. And so to jump, when we go through this whole presentation, we get to the end, propose rule change. And everyone's probably feeling pretty good. Okay, we're acknowledging some of these things look good, but FWC really wants to take a lot of these other things into account. This is awesome. We're about to get control of our fishery. And we get back to the Southern IRL region, propose rule change, match current regulations in the Atlantic. So they're doing all this hard work. I know, you know, background in fishery science, marine science. I know what goes into these. There's a lot of really smart people that, that do this stuff. And so the disconnect they dedicate here, their life to it. They're really, really smart. So this is not some dumb disconnected from society scientists. These are really smart people and these are how the numbers play out. So they're not wrong with that. But you're working your way towards regional management and you have all these factors, which we named those seven, okay? And the SBR is telling us that things are going good, but it's coastwide. That's the only good thing. Let's go through every other six. Harmful algal blooms, not good. We don't get HABs as much. We have a lower presence. That does not mean we don't get discharges. Northern, Northern IRL, you know, once you get up to Melbourne, all they have horrible, horrible algal blooms. Mm-hmm. Where they have, you know, massive fish kills. Mm-hmm. And that was brought up in the meeting last night, I think by myself and a couple other people, just because it's not classified as a full hab as it gets to our estuary into the ocean, are we taking into account just toxic discharges that are getting dumped on us? So number two, negative. Number three, stakeholder feedback. I can tell you from the couple hours we spent last night, negative. Very, very negative. 100% of people now, granted, there was only 30 people there in classic fisheries management meeting. No one goes to them. Zero people in opposition saying, things are good. Leave it the same. Uh, poor, very poor. Yep. Fishing effort and catch rates. We already hit that. Going up. Catch rates going up. Fishing effort going up. Habitat. The most crucial, I believe, personally, out of all of these, mm-hmm. we've lost it all. All. So th- there's no habitat. And then the last two... Last one's benign temperature. Yeah, water's the same. Actually, you know, oceans might be getting a little bit warmer, a little bit less threat to freezes. I, I, you know, that's not what's going on with our fishery. Call that one benign. Relative abundance, we have already hit it. The relative abundance is... Trending way down. Trending way down. So you've got, we got one that you're saying, we're saying, okay, we get why you're at this number, but it doesn't apply specifically to our fishery and you can't calculate SPR this regionally. So we got one that says positive, but doesn't make sense here. You have five that are insanely negative and let's call temperature neutral. If you're going to start managing based off of all these factors and including stakeholder feedback and habitat being two very important ones and fishing effort as well, how are you not making any changes right now? And, and 
There are a couple different ways that you could change it as extreme to shutting down the entire harvest for one year, which we see a lot happen on the West Coast around the, the red tides. They shut down harvest. We hear from our guides who are friends. We, you know, you've done it long, a lot longer than I have. Even before when I was guiding, I worked in the industry with captains and guides as my main job. We get a lot of connections over there and you hear how insane the fishing is when they shut things down after even a couple months, like the, the amount of relief on all those fish not being harvested how good things are so you, you have all these things going into one giant bundle and this community calling for we need help the clean water stuff is not tied to this so there were a lot of comments about the discharges those are the captains for clean water meetings we need to keep that fight going it applies here and should be factored in here, but we don't make changes to that in this meeting. This meeting is yeah, about they, snook they, they management. They don't do any determination on clean water. They don't fight for clean water. This is snook management. How you could take all those into account and not have some sort of proposed, you know, there's a there's a two seasons for, for snook in Florida. How you're not proposing maybe one of them is shut down you could change the slot one of the issues with shrinking and changing slots is you have adherence issues with education and enforceability and if you shrink the slot there's a lot of data that goes back with snook to show that more fish are harvested outside the slot so if you go from 28 to 32 to 29 to 31 people are still going to keep their 28s and so there's a i'm not sure that's necessarily the best metric here is just shrinking up what size can be kept but to not make any changes, what was your initial reaction when you walked in the room, picked up his PowerPoint, and saw that they oh, I, I thought they were clueless. I thought they had no idea what they're talking about. I thought they didn't have a very good grasp of uh, the, the fishery in my area. Mm -hmm. uh, but it's interesting because if you talk to some of the guys at fish here, I mean, there's guys that want to expand the size limit yeah. in the bag limit. They think it's amazing. You know, they may have a spot that's really good, and they catch you know, the fish on a fairly regular basis, mm -hmm. or they have a spot that's not pressured, mm -hmm. or they've just been doing it their whole lives and are very good at it. Mm -hmm. But the average guy, that's not any average guy. And that's not, certainly not the working guides. Mm -hmm. You know, you'll never get a guide to say that it's amazing. Yep. None of them. And, and I mean, we all just care about it. We just want to see it good. I, I don't begrudge anybody taking a fish. I like to eat snook. Mm -hmm. They eat pretty well, uh, but I'm, I won't kill one when, you know, the population's so down. You're shooting, you're shooting your business in the foot. You're yeah, exactly. It's, a, it's it's about being a long, having long-term vision mm -hmm. of your fishery. If you're uh, fishing a rubble pile and this six-slot snook on it, okay, and you let your two anglers, get, this is basic math. If you let your two anglers each day keep their one-slot fish each time you go for three days, how many are left when you go back for your fourth trip that week? It's a lot. It's, it's zero if anyone here is struggling with mathematics, right? It, so, I mean, there's there's so many dynamics to it. There, there is almost, I mean, the population, in my opinion, is so low that if all these fish are surviving, then you know they're going to lay a bunch of eggs. And I mean, you could probably keep every fish just about. And the the, the habitat's so small right now; it's not going to take that much to populate it. It's just there's no habitat to populate, you know. Which that might, argument that might then, be true, but that's scary. Oh no, that's, start it's, accepting it's, it. it's I'm, horrifying. I'm being right? a devil's advocate there. Yeah, it's just a ridiculous. Yeah. The, the other side of it is, you know, looking at the SPR, a lot of that is based on these. There's been a major movement of fish to the north, 
um, past their historic, you know, tropic temperate lines. If you, if you look at Florida, the cold fronts that come down get to about Vero Beach. That's the tropic temperate line. Mm-hmm. Below Vera, Vero Beach, you'll see the trees are different. It's tropical. Above Vero Beach, you'll see the trees are different. It's, it's temperate. Um, and that was sort of the dividing line for a lot of fish. People will get, fish will get north of it, but when you have these big freezes, um, they would all die. Um, so, you know, you, you look at the survivability, um, the last, whatever, couple of decades that we've been in, it's been very warm, but all we need is one freeze and it'll kill all the fish. Mm-hmm. Then you have nothing up there. Mm-hmm. Then all that's left is what's here, which is just a fraction of what's going to be available to, you know, to regenerate that population. And so when you, when you touch on that and you talk about movements a little bit, and we talked about site fidelity, um, a lot of conversations about bait, a lot of conversations about habitat. And last night, um, one of the, and it's, it's not his, you know, he's not forcing an opinion or challenging us. He said, Oh, one of these other meetings a little bit further South, we actually heard some good responses and, the, the difficult part to process there, whether that is, I'm sure he's not lying. He was a good dude. Um, just because those positive responses are further south, you're swapping the regional management. Good thing. Green stand. Great thing. You're trying to make our area better. Are you just going to manage our area in a way that these fish have no, if I didn't have a house to live in and I didn't have any food around me and I saw a beautiful mansion with a bunch of steaks on the table, wouldn't I kind of walk down the road and it was, you know, uninhabited? Wouldn't I go hang out there? Set so, up a pie on the window? Yeah, exactly. You walk in by and say, that smells good in there. Is someone cooking? Wouldn't you, if you were a fish, not come back here? I, I think I would too. So are you going to manage our fishery and say, well, you know, down in West Palm, they said it's pretty good actually. Okay, well, you could be telling me that they're enjoying my fish. So the whole point of regional management is to take care of this region and it can't be acceptable that, well, these fish are just moving. Well, then you've poorly managed this region. Well, it, it, this is a really good example. The fish will move. We all know that, mm-hmm. um, particularly East Coast fish. Um, Back in the 90s, all the TV shows, all the magazines. Like Full House? Yeah, no. And Hustler? Florida Sportsman. You know, <laughs> all, all the major fishing magazines talked about how great the snook fishing was in Palm Beach. Mm-hmm. 80s, 90s. Then it was Jupiter. Because mm-hmm. Palm Beach got so much pressure, the fish moved to Jupiter. And it was amazing, mm-hmm. you know, in the 90s in Jupiter. And then in the 2000s, it was Stewart. Mm-hmm. And now Fort Pierce is saying how great it is. I mean, it's a pretty obvious trend. The more fishing pressure, those fish will move. Mm-hmm. Um, they'll move away from the pressure. But at some point, they cannot get past their um, you know, ability to withstand the cold winters and get to a zone where you know just one good freeze kills everything. And we have. I mean, in... in um, I think 2010 it was, we had this massive freeze. Uh, we had, you know, we probably have five days in a row where the temperatures were below 30 degrees and the water temperatures dropped. We, we lost a significant part of our population. Mm-hmm. And I mean, like in, in the Northern stretches, like in Vero beach, you know, which is right at that tropic temperate zone, there were guys that filled up, filled their boats with 25 pound fish 
you know, and those are, you know, like, like, you know, the bigger the fish, the more eggs they lay, mm-hmm. big breeders, better genetics. Um, you know, those fish are just taken out of population and, and to rely on the fact that maybe those fish will be around, um, you know, through all these different scenarios, it's just kind of playing Russian roulette with your, with your fishery. And so when you got more fish in the water and you have a cold spell, in the same way, you know, uh, and let's not even tangent off into this. It's a whole different animal, but talking about the red tide on the West Coast and red tide is a naturally occurring phenomenon. So there's, there's a cohort of people saying it's not that big of a deal. It naturally happens. Okay. Well, like temperature. No, it gets worse. It, it's exacerbated by the, 100%. the freshwater runoff and the, and the nutrients that come over there. We're on the and same And it's getting worse and worse and worse every year. So when you look at a phenomenon like that and you say, okay, well, that's naturally occurring, there's temperature changes. I'm sure there's been a bunch of different cold spells over the last 40 years, right? If you've got millions and millions of fish in the water and an abundant population, when some die, the ospreys get some food, the pelicans get some food, the circle of life, you know, you can't afford that. Like if we're going to operate with a skin deep abundance level going forward, we are just wobbling and Mike Tyson is walking towards us. We are one giant punch away from absolute collapse. Completely and, whacking them. And that's why we can't not take some sort of step to try to manage back towards abundance because we're just walking on a tightrope, walking on floss. And at any given time, whether it's a cold spell or whatever it may be, or some insane discharge or natural phenomena like a, a hurricane hits and we have some major incident, we're going to have nothing left and you touched on it we hammer the bigger fish are your spawning females snook are kind of funny they get i don't know if anyone knows this but they swap from male to female in their life so hermaphroditic yeah yeah there you go look at you i didn't know that was in your oh yeah that one's in your personal vocabulary um so they wear a dress out to dinner even though they're a guy so they get they get up right Group together, bunch of males, a small cohort in the schooling, in the uh, spawning aggregation, swaps over to become female, grows substantially going forward, becomes a female, stays a female for the rest of their life. Okay. Those fish that swap over, I don't think, and, and if there's a biologist listening or someone knows, please send it to me uh, on social or, or on ASGA social, but I don't think they know what goes into what the determining factor is for why specific fish do that. But that seems like something pretty important, right? You need your females. That's a basic natural phenomenon in wildlife. You need giant females that produce with the smaller males. If we don't have them, we have no next generation coming. And interestingly enough, at the same time, I wish people had a visual so they could see me looking like an idiot with my hands. SPR is going up at the exact same time we're shown a, a Persane metric, an indice for how much abundance there is or how abundant the smaller snook are when they sane the river and, and they randomize their location. There's reasons to the way that they execute the sanes the way they do. They randomize sample different places. And, and I know there's some commentary about that. Your juvenile index is tanking. That's at correct. the same Coming time down. that supposedly you've got more and more and more and more spawning big fish. And so the conversation, and this was the one thing that, you know, I think someone that we both knew came over to me after and was like, nerd, will you shut up so we can go home and get some dinner and stuff? But the one thing that I kept digging into that I couldn't get an answer to is 
someone asked that, how are these, how do I understand these two graphs going the same way? And they said, oh, it's pretty simple. We can't do the SPR, you know, that's a stock wise, that's the entire coast. And then your indice for your juveniles and your saying on your sayings is localized. And I asked, okay, but there's a 2022 stock, 2020, excuse me, stock assessment for Snook. It's also tanking. So that's Atlanta, and it says Atlantic Coast in the stock assessment. So you're tanking coast wide. So that answer to like get out of that question of, oh, these are just different things. No, 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 because there also is comparable data that shows both of them going the same way. So how do I? I didn't even have an opinion. I just said, how do I process that? And it was, uh, we're going to have to look at that and get back to you. Well, yeah, to put it more sensible is your regional parameters are tanking. Yeah. The for our statewide region. For our region. parameter is showing them doing really well. How can you use that as a comparison to what the fish are doing in a regional management plan? And that's... Again, I'm gonna say it a hundred times. We're gonna make a public comment here. We're gonna rally our community. We're gonna get a bunch of stuff to come out of this. Bare bones, regional management equals good. Multiple dynamics, not just your basic statistics going into management decisions, really good. We have a beautiful game plan and a beautiful roster of all the players to put in to do it. How is this how you play on the field? where you don't change anything and you lean, you know, the, and it's, I understand also that so much goes into the recruitment of data and it's very, very hard to get. So if they're saying we just can't calculate it by the way the formulas work or we just can't capture that data quick enough regionally, not hating on it, I understand that, but you can't build this whole game plan and then lean on the first variable and say, well, it's what we got and 51 bigger than 40, so. The one good variable. Yeah. How do we not consider all the other variables? And if you go down the list, stakeholder in the middle, there was a gentleman there. I believe the number was said maybe he'd been fishing since he was six here. And that was Bob Pelosi. 70. Uh, Bob, if I mess up your age, you're, you're timeless. 74. Was he 74 or 76? He's 74. Okay. He was fishing. He's, you know, we'll round up. We'll give him the benefit of the doubt. Seven decades of fishing here. Okay. That's someone that's seen... And he and he's a he lot. tagged. He worked with the uh, FWC when they were when they were before they were the FWC when they were the Florida Marine Patrol. Mm -hmm. um, and he worked with the Jupiter um, Research Study, re the Jupiter Research Lab, um, on their snook tagging program. And he tagged ten thousand fish for them. So, so not even. Let's add one more layer. We're not even saying, "Hey, this is the old head. He knows not what's to going he's on." A scientist. Here. Add that data, add also the fact that he's in tune to fisheries research. And we're not saying that he's a fisheries biologist hammering on all these data. This is someone that this isn't a meathead fisherman that's come in here and say, ah, you know, I've just been killing. What? This is someone that's been engaged in, in the process. I heard a couple comments. There was one gentleman, uh, I don't know his name, that was really choked up. And he said it was great to see a couple of his uh, older friends there and said, like, he was heartbroken to be at things like this year after year after year. And we keep saying X and it keeps going Y, it keeps going the other way. And so to see that your stakeholder engagement and you had a lot of, you know, the staples of this relative it's growing quickly i know but relative to maybe other areas like the keys or you know relatively small guiding and fishing community compared to some of the major major hotspots 
100% in agreement. And I'm sure there's some handful of people, we know them, that don't disagree. They want slot to be bigger. They want to kill more fish. They're the experts at snook fishing, okay? They weren't there. And if that's something they want to fight for, sorry, buddy, should have showed up. You know, we're not going to manage our fishery to people who aren't engaged in the fishery and part of the process. So it's just really hard for me to conceptualize. And, and I think that's why we need to rally people and, and really let this the FWC know they're asking for stakeholder engagement. We're, we're going to give it to them. People know something is wrong here. Well, it, it was interesting because somebody used the terminology canary in a coal mine. Yep. And that was super appropriate. The guides are frontline. And so are the hardcore anglers. Mm-hmm. You know, the guys, there's, it's 1% of the fish get, fishermen catch 99% of the fish. Mm-hmm. It's always been that way. The people who dedicate their lives to it are always going to do very well. Um, and when you have, you know, 100% of the guys at this meeting saying, there's an issue here, you know, the population is way down and you should actually probably close this or take some s- severe management actions. Mm-hmm. Might be worth listening to them. And there were people, this was not 100%, you know, waited up, trout. No, there was no, no waffling in the room. It was, it no. was very interesting. And this was, there were people there that kill a bunch of snook. Oh yeah. This was not like this was not the the angling pacifists rally against harvest of fish. There's a lot of people in there that like killing a bunch of snook and kill a bunch of other species. A lot too. of other fish too, yeah. So when you have people that say I kill them and I can't now. Not one literally I can't. I can't find the ones to kill. Two, I just can't with a good conscience. That it has to there has to be some weight. And I saw some heads. There was a handful of people running the meeting. And I didn't, I've been at a bunch of striped bass meetings and you feel like you're talking on deaf ears. Our audience here knows you feel like you're saying X and they're nodding going, will you just shut up so I can go get dinner? Thank you so much. There were nodding heads last night where where the people running the meeting were saying, okay. They got the message. Yeah. We we get it. And so I think we're seeing that. I mean, I think that's, that's how it should be. It almost felt like, you know, the way things were supposed to work. Right? Like, hey, we're gonna give you an idea. You guys Very let us small know. But people can have an impact. Let's let's work towards something special that we manage it the way you guys want it and it's best for the fishery. And so it it feels like we're damn close to doing something good here. And so I kind of want to wrap this up. We both made public comments and could try to maybe find the audio somewhere along the way. I don't think you know we need to go word for word here, but I'm going to kick it off and hit on a couple things that I thought were really important. Maybe you can then as well. And then we'll round this out by letting people know that, you know, there's going to be a more formalized uh, discussion and presentation of what we want to see for this region here in the next week or two, because there's a meeting at the start of May in Miami. Bet your ass. I got to check if I have a trip, but I bet you bet my ass is going to be there. I'll be sitting front row. I'm going to bring this up. I want to make sure that we get our comments in early enough to think of a little time to metabolize it and, and, uh, you know, do your homework early and you get a little bit better grade with the teacher. So my public comment was focused on some of these things, you know, in my fourth year building my business and I'm pretty sick of hearing about the good old days. And I'm really excited to see regional management, the focus on this region specifically for what it is, the discharges it deals with, the pressure that it deals with, and everything that is going on here, the lack of habitat. Thank you. I really support the utilization of more management metrics. Fish are not numbers, but we need numbers to manage fish at scale. We don't 
we it's impossible to count fish, but we've got some smart people who figured out some pretty impressive ways to get an idea. Mm-hmm. Let's use more metrics. Boom. We need to consider a couple things that are not in those metrics. The first thing that I am really surprised that there's almost no consideration of uh, is forage fish. And I think a lot of it goes into diversity in Florida. There are so many different things they could eat. And I get that. But there are some anchor anchor bait species for snook and for our inshore fish. You know, up north, striped bass, something like that, bluefish. Got a handful of things that make up a vast majority of of their... uh, of their diet down here i know they can eat pinfish pigfish the uh maharas we got pilchers we got we got bunker menhaden that come down we have a, a bunch of different things there's no consideration of forage fish now the way menhaden are being managed coastwide now and everything that's going on on the menhaden front ecological reference points put in place menhaden are considered for their value too striped bass to the other managed fish to the ecosystem at the whole the the birds the whales the bees and everywhere in between okay the fact that there's no metric at all considering bait in the management of inshore fisheries blows my mind i called out it should yeah yeah it's kind of important well what what you know what food is left they're not managing yeah and so flip forward here real quick Next thing I touched on was the stakeholder feedback. They showed us a chart. I'm not going to give, I know people were kind of razzing them on the low participation. Like my initial response is you go get 1800 people to do a serve. It's really hard, right? So we need to give them smaller numbers, but it is what they have for a reflection of, of engagement. The numbers are better in the four higher sector. Now, do you remember what the number was? I know you don't have it right in front of you. 15 for higher responses. What'd you give it a, a rating? Very poor. Very poor. Okay, so I see you on there. You're the little, little red sliver. It actually says Mike Holiday there. It doesn't say poor. And you've kind of got some fair and some good in the four higher. You look over to the recreational side, and that could be someone who's very skilled at fishing. That could be mom and pops who, you know, have a snook permit and they like to take their kids fishing a couple times a year. The, the responses are way worse. So we need to manage this in a way. This is not just mine and yours fishery. This is not just someone that's got side scan and I go, oh, I got 32 fish right here. Throw it 16 feet that way, drift it through the current, boom, fish, fish, fish. There needs to be some fish from the pier for the guys who are the pier rats at 2 a.m. throwing plugs. There needs to be some fish for the people walking the sandbar who just want to catch one. You, you need to take into account that this is everyone's fishery and the worst responses are with the every man's, every man's angler. And neither of neither of them are good. No, yeah, that's very fair to call out. Uh, again, wish we could we could show the chart here. Some of my last couple ones here, the weighting and the SPR. I think this is huge. I understand the value of these metrics, but it and it should be in consideration, but it doesn't align with everything good that they're doing. It's the one, it's the one sticking point here that doesn't align with everything else that's going on. And, you know, I called out our discharges being considered even though they don't become HABs. And then the final major thing that that I think is really important, and I find it very interesting. This, there's starting to be a development here in Florida where Florida's starting to protect its spawning fish. We're seeing some stuff on the Keys, certain wrecks. Hey, we know our permit, our muttons. Uh, I think different grouper spawn here. We're gonna shut this place down for a month or whatever it may be. 
give them a little bit of a break, right? You look up the East Coast with everything that's wrong with striped bass management and that entire nightmare. There are sections of the river, call our good friend Tony, that some insane fishing, they shut it down. They know all their big fish are coming up in this creek. This entire creek is shut down for April. Florida's really bad at protecting its spawning fish. It's redfish and snook are the two. You got tarpon, you got bonefish as you go further south. The kind of every man's iconic fish are redfish and snook in Florida. They spawn in the inlets. It used so to they, be sea trout. I mean, I and you know why I don't even say that? Now. Because everywhere, everywhere. We don't have them. So exactly. It's not, it's not That's why it didn't even pop into my head, right? So that was your, your in-short. That was the number now. one targeted fish in Florida, you know, in 2010. Mm-hmm. So it's your inshore grand slam. One of them's completely knocked off base there. The other two, they spawn in the inlet. They pack into a bowling alley. There's a handful of different ways they use it. We know exactly how they use it. And we, the angling public, not me and you specifically, know how to catch them when they're, they are very easy to get. It is the easiest way to catch your biggest fish. Mm-hmm. So these fish you're catching, dragging a croaker through the school, I don't even want to talk about like some of the commentary. I almost don't want to educate anyone. That's, but I guess if you listen this far, please, you know, join our fight. And this is your little tip, right? You can see them down in these certain places that we won't name. You can see the pile of fish. Yeah, there's 150 fish right there. There's 200. Is that giant black wad that looks like a, a cinder block? That's like all rocks. Yeah. Why are the rocks coming up from the bottom and eating my baits, right? You can see them. If you got side scan, you got down scan, you're good with your machines. You can mark them really good, right? And you can go to the bait shop and purchase what they want to kill, what they want to kill when they're spawning. We have built the perfect formula for killing, or excuse me, we've built the perfect formula for catching our spawning fish. And so I really want to see, and and I'm not the only one that brought this up, it's always been something that's kind of bothered me. And I was happy to see that a lot of the guys that have been here a while brought it up too. We, there needs to be some sort of protection, education and protection on those spawning fish because I spent $300. I'm not rich. I'm not made of money. I spent $300 on a beautiful stowaway net that like, Oh, it folds down into like the palm of your hand and opens up. You could fit like a whole swimming pool in it because I understand how important those fish are. If you're releasing fish, give them their best chance to survive. If you're going to kill a fish, put a gaff in its head, throw it in the box. I'm not, I'm not some sort of wuss. If you're going to kill it, kill it and eat it. If you're going to release your fish, don't be a catch and release killer. And it hurts my soul to see the people that this is their first 42 inch fish. You can't blame the angler. They're so excited. And the guide, whether they're new like me or an old vet in the game like yourself, Oh, I need this. This is my photo. Look at this. A mom and their kid in a 42-inch snook. What better marketing material to get people to come? That snook lays on the deck. Everyone celebrates. Cap takes a minute getting the hook out of it. You know, digging down. Okay, we got the hook out. Cool. Mom, you guys get set up. Oh, they flop the fish because they've never hold a fish before. Okay, we're at two minutes now. Pop them up. We're doing it. Tickle his belly. The fins are up. Oh, look at that. Okay, one second. My lens is whatever. Da-da-da-da-da. Oh, this is so awesome. We did it. We did it. Oh, I got to get a video here real soon. This is amazing. This might be a record for me. I'm going to hold it. Let's hold it up to my... Oh, it's 42 inches. That's the biggest one this season. It's on the ruler. We're at five minutes and this thing is just going, please. It's shooting. You see them shooting their eggs out all over the deck. They start pissing. They start, you know, disposing the urea. 
they're just in the, they go into this fight or flight natural reaction which is i'm about to die at least i want to get my eggs out in the water so very valiant it's like you know it's like a jason bourne movie or something i'm going out guns ablaze in my eggs are in the system i'm gonna die right now and that captain thinks he's really or just recreational angler thinks he's releasing that fish and gonna go back there to catch it tomorrow and even if it's not out of malicious intent and i'm not saying that everyone out there is some negative person or that i'm perfect by any sort of the imagination but we can't know that this is going on and not holistically address it we're shooting ourselves in the foot and i the one major thing and i want to hear what you have to say on on kind of your public comment but we need to protect those spawning fish whether it's you know we have a we have an island and this is one of my favorite things to tell people we have bird island in the indian river right and there's signs you're not allowed to fish by it totally cool right you know people it's protected it, it's very important to bird roosting reproduction whatever it might be i don't know the exact science behind it but there's a sign there and it says caution no access critical wildlife habitat and if you look at what everything else that has gone on with our habitat how can you not say that everything else there is not critical but that one everything island? is not just that one island mike i've seen this sign all the habitats critical all the islands are critical so if you take the say the four places that these fish spawn and you put some sort of critical critical habitat leave them alone type thing, i don't know what the exact details are and, and part of this is i want to present these ideas because there's some smart people involved in this and so let's say here's our issue fwc give us a solution to our problem here yeah this is your chance to be the hero there's all these things going on with the fisheries and water management and you have as much pr stress as you ever have we're giving you a chance to help us out protect our spawning fish and change these regulations in a way that puts more fish in the water that was my ramble yeah mine was similar um you know addressing the spr i think it needs to be more regional and take into account predation mm -hmm. you know and we'll, let's address those spawning fish in the inlet mm -hmm. you know it, it, the dynamics changed mm -hmm. when i was young there weren't very many people fishing it um, I remember when I was one of the few people fishing it. People didn't think you could catch those fish because they wouldn't eat because nobody used live bait. You can't catch them. If you're listening to this, you cannot catch them. So um, it's changed. You know, there's so many people fishing all the time. I mean, they're just hit all day, every day. Mm -hmm. There's not a moment the fish aren't being fished for. Mm -hmm. And um, now we have this abundance of sharks, Goliath groupery, a barracuda that are all moving into these areas to prey on the fish and, and you know up until about five years ago I, I mean I fished those fish all the time when I was when I was younger and I only once had one eaten by a shark never and now it's just a daily occurrence the guides go in first off they go by their live bait they rush right to the inlet mm -hmm. and fish the fish right at dawn when so first light, light six o'clock low light so the fish are more active you know they're on the fish very well. by six fifteen. Uh, i'm going out the inlet usually around six mm -hmm. and they're already on the inlet mm -hmm. and um they fish until the sharks you're gonna catch four or five and then sharks are gonna eat them and then you go move and then somebody else comes in and the fish won't bite when the sharks are around but the sharks will back off you hook another fish, you catch a few of them, then sharks eat one, or barracuda eats one, then everything shuts down again. 
Um, so there's a you know there's a predation that that's taking place that's not included in that SBR. And they're getting smarter every year. I had a I had a, I was tarpon fishing solo on the bow running my trolling motor and these fish were giving me some cues like I was getting too close. I'm saying I'm so far away. How could how could they be reading me right now? Did I hit the trolling motor in a way that I don't normally do? And I looked down to see what was up with my trolling motor, and there was a 10 foot hammerhead under my boat in the shadow of my boat, waiting for me to hook the tarpon. So we reacted to those sharks big time. Yeah, um, it, it, it's certainly affecting behavior. Um, you know, when they're looking at uh, like the regional stuff, they really need to look about fishing effort. You know, it used to be forever. Habitat destruction was the biggest issue impact in the fisheries. And I think now there's so many people fishing, you know, in, in on the Treasure Coast, there's 46,000 registered boats. Is that a lot? Yeah. You know. <laughs> so, um, you know, a lot of them are offshore boats. But what do you do when the wind's blowing? You can't go offshore. If you want to go fish, you're fishing. Inshore. Inshore. And if you're fishing inshore, you're fishing snook. Mm-hmm. Uh, the pressure is dramatic and it's almost, it's having a, a major impact. So that, I mean, that needs to be um, addressed and it needs to be um, taken into account mm-hmm. um, as well as the habitat trends, you know, the total decrease in the seagrass and the lack, you know, now that everything's just on the shorelines as well as the bait fish, you know, there's only so much bait left. And, uh, you know, a good example was last week, we hadn't had pilchards all winter. And they showed up a week ago, and within two days, there were bait boats coming from Jupiter. There were bait boats coming from Fort Pierce, coming up to net our bait, to net the food supply that's there. There's only so much food, and it, and that number is decreasing all the time because there's only so much habitat, and there's so many people targeting them. So you're pretty good with the cast net, right? Mm-hmm. Better than myself. Okay, you pull up, you see the school. It's it's a good school. Not even like the Hail Mary, but it's a good one. You throw your cast net. How many how many pilsters do you think you take with you? Um, of the bigger ones? Call them a medium. Okay. Um, 100. Okay. 100. 150, you know. Mm-hmm. But, you know, and that, that's sort of how it was. There was always a big school. The guys would come in. The fishing guys would come in, and they'd take 100, 150. That's all their live well is going to hold. Mm-hmm. That's all you really need. And um, and I'm teeing up here. And, and I would fish that same school. I mean, I would you just go back to get the bait from that same school for three months. And mm-hmm. now, because they're so pressured, three you know that, that school shows up, and within a week, it's gone. Mm-hmm. Two weeks. You know, sometimes it, it'll last longer, but um, it's not there for very long. Mm-hmm. Uh, so you know, the the volume of food is getting diminished as well. And those guys are damn good at throwing. A, they're professional cast net throwers, oh, yeah. so they get. It's what they do for a living. And they sit on them all day. I pull up, I throw the net a couple times. And you ride out. Or I throw the net 30 times like I've had to do. It's not good for when you three say. three hours to Oh, catch I just my got bait. them. I got 12. And I got 60 baits. Yeah. You know, um, it, it's a major issue. Mm-hmm. Um, as well as, you know, just being able, everybody to be able to have good bait to go fish the fish. Um, the pressure on the fish is, is dramatic. Mm-hmm. Um, I'd like to see them when they look at all the relative abundance to look at the places, not just the areas that historically have had fish, but you know some of the places like the like the flats that we used to fish. You need to be going out there. If you go out and and, and uh, Selfish Point Flats would be a good example. Mm-hmm. If you went out and put a seine net on Selfish Point Flats, you're going to get 
Assume Miller Lite cans. Well, uh, I mean, someone's per- lower in unit. In 2010, you were going to catch a lot of fish and a variety of fish as well. Um, now you're going to catch a couple of needlefish. You're not getting much. You're not getting a snook. You're not, you know, you're going to catch a few bluefish. Someone's hat. And, and you know, the trash from the weekend. Mm. Um, so include that. Like, you know, that should give you an idea that those fish are all gone in that location. Mm-hmm. We're not we're not just gonna test all the good locations. Yeah. Um, I I love the fact that they're gonna go to regional planning for that. You know, it's just it it's super important, I think. I think it's the right way to look at it. Um, it's been a long time coming. And and it allows them to respond when, you know, it's positive as well as negative. Mm-hmm. Um, for me, I would like them to close the snook season completely. Uh, and not open it up until there is an abundance, and there's not an abundance. Mm-hmm. I'm really good at catching snook. I'm really good. I've done my whole done it my whole life. And when I'm, you know, a good day for me is ten fish, ten small fish. Something's up. I mean, and another good indicator is you know the number of fishing guides that are now targeting, you know, the meat day. We'll go catch sheep's head and croakers. When we talk to some of our, our buddies we know who are very good at catching fish and they say, I mean, bounce a bunch of shrimp off the bottom of the bridge, caught some drum, caught some this, caught some that, you know, piece together the day. Those are damn good fishermen. They shouldn't have to do that. And they're not doing it because they really want to run they're shrimp on the bottom trip. They, do that. they are counting the minutes of those four hours going, God damn, I can't wait to get paid and get home. Mm-hmm. People shouldn't have to do that. And they're doing it because there's nothing there's no bait and there's no with an asterisk and you know this is one of the biggest issues with guides is they don't want to talk about this because we're not saying we've had run a lot of trips already this year and caught a lot of fish right had all of our anglers have had a really good time mm-hmm. we can't use that shifting baseline of that angler that's stoked that they caught a dozen fish that's awesome and i'm glad they had a great time i can't wait to have them back they need to know that that's an awesome trip for them. I'm glad they enjoyed it. It was a good trip for this season, but it's not a good trip relative to the giant scale of where this fish should be. And so that shifting baseline thing is needs to be in consideration. It, it, it's horrible. And, and I mean, it's to the point that I would rather do anything but snookfish. Anything. I would rather, if I can get out the inlet, I am gone. Every morning you wake be, up, check the wind, it, what are you looking dude, for? Dude, if I can do anything with snookfish, I am gone. West wind, it's, see ya. It's very stressful for me because it's so inconsistent. Mm-hmm. Um, I feel horrible beating up on the fish. Mm-hmm. You know, I feel like I'm catching fish that have three holes in their mouth already. I caught one in December that had two circle hooks in its face and ate my bait, had a third circle hook. I put, and, and we should note, like striped bass up the East Coast, largely recreational, largely a release fishery, huge impact on the death of the fish is released fish and released mortality. Mm-hmm. And they're closer to 10 out of every 100 fish that are released die on an average. Snook are closer to two. They're really hardy fish. Like they're very hardy fish. Snook and even redfish. I don't know what the exact calculation is. They're for hardy fish. fish as well. Redfish trout are kind of weak. You can shoot a redfish in the head with like a like a, a spear gun and miss, and it'll just swim around with barb hanging out of its head while it keeps eating stuff. It'll probably turn around and eat your fly right after. Southeast Florida Louisiana fish. Louisiana redfish will. Florida where redfish will be fair, going. Fair enough. These fish are tanks. They're really durable, so they're set up to be an amazing fish. 
that can be caught and caught and caught again and then get into an appropriate slot and be harvested when there's enough fish. They're a great candidate to do so. There, there, there's a great argument to use only circle hooks with live bait. Mm -hmm. You know, I mean, you're less likely inline circle hooks. You're considerably less likely to throat hook them. If you hook a, if you hook a snook in the throat um, with the hook pointing down, I think it hits their heart. I'm not sure. It hits an artery or something, and they die. Hmm. If it's pointing up, that's not a big deal. But if it's pointing down, and which is nine out of ten times, it's pointing down. Maybe even ten out of ten times. And also, me and you know, you know, if you're throwing a big mullet, you you got to gear up. Yeah, like me. Pilchards, a lot of stuff. You can use a really small hook and catch really big fish. And then letting the cat out of the bag. I'm sure there's a lot of goofballs out there throwing something a lot bigger. You can use a, a two-aught hook, a one-aught hook. You can dial down really light, especially if you're, you know, if you're targeting fish over 40. But you can land a giant overslot fish on a very small hook. Mm -hmm. You don't need time. you don't need to hammer them with two treble hooks on your giant favorite plug. You can swap those over to to inline circles too. So, you know, I think. To try to, I'm sure if anyone's listening to us at this point, if they're just waking up for their nap, thank you for joining us. Feel free to rewind and <laughs> rewind. I hope we helped your drive pass. But, you know, the next steps from this be more to come. Uh, follow the American Saltwater Guides Association. The guys, we've already talked to the team. They've agreed that they're going to help us kind of dial everything in here um, to make sure that we can present something pretty formal that's laid out and clear and, and has clean and clear asks. That's one of the hardest parts of fisheries management. There are a lot of gentlemen there that their import is, is even more important than mine with with how long they've been here and they've seen it all and they know what they're trying to say. And I'm saying what they're trying to say, we're all on the same page, but they don't know how to effectively make a comment relative to how these ridiculous, sometimes asinine systems work. So we, we got to button our, our stuff up a, lit, a little bit, Mr. Holiday, but I think there's some pretty obvious asks here, which is thank you for doing all this good Take it over the finish line. Let's see some, and let's see what you guys can come to us. We need some sort, even if it's not a full season long shutdown, we need something that trends us more towards rebuilding our abundance. We got to protect our big fish and we got to look at all these variables that they're talking about considering and some that they're not yet. We got to look at all of those before we look at the numbers for Martin County. Well, so, so hopefully the variables even expand include some of those things like predation and, and you know, bait abundance. Um, but I, first thing I would say is bravo to the FWC for the regional management strategy. How often do you I, hear I, bravo FWC I, in Florida? I, it is way <laughs> overdue. It's amazing. Yeah. I think it, I think it's a great um, direction for them to be moving. I, I think it's logical. I think it allows them to um, be reactionary. And, and, you know, get ahead of things, whether they're trending up or down. Mm -hmm. um, you know, so let's, let's not make it a one-way thing. Let's not always trend down. Let's trend up, too. Mm -hmm. When things are good, let's take care. Let's open the fishery and stretch the size limits, mm -hmm. you know, when, when that's applicable. Mm -hmm. But I think, what a great plan. I mean, how, how do we not get to this beforehand? Mm -hmm. um, you know, a snook is a tropical fish, and it really doesn't reach all the way up to you know, the big bend and in, in numbers, when we have these, these, uh, you know, multiple warm years, um, the, the range will expand because of the fish will travel. But, um, as a rule, nature 
um, negates that stuff or controls that stuff. Mm-hmm. So, you know, we may have six or eight or 10 years where they're catching them in Jacksonville, but the first year that we get a big cold freeze, you know, everything north of Europe is dead. <clears throat> and, uh, you know, we need to management, manage fish with that in mind. We, if we manage them regionally, you know, there will always be fish here for us. Mm-hmm. And, and to keep the people in mind, mm-hmm. you know, that it should be a fish that everybody has a chance to catch. Mm-hmm. My my closing remark, and I'll, I'll end it, this podcast here with the same way I did end my public comment, is they started off their meeting by introducing snook as an iconic fish. And my challenge to them is manage it that way. Treat it that way. Yeah. That's a good comment. Yeah. Thank you, everyone, for listening. More to come here. A lot to come on the striper front. We got a technical committee meeting tomorrow for stripers. A lot to come on Albi management. ASGA is going to be very busy in the coming months. But I thank you all for listening, and uh, we'll talk to you here next time. Thanks, Mike. Yeah. yeah.